Welcome to Meet, Act, and Part. A Masonic podcast hosted by Midnight Freemasons Greg Knott, Darren Larners, Todd Creason, and Bill Hosler. The views, opinions and experiences that are expressed by the hosts or guests as individual Freemasons do not reflect the official position of any Grand Lodge, appendant body, or Masonic authority to which the hosts or guests belong. And now on with the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another exciting episode of Meet, Act, and Part. This is episode 25, which in a numeric value seems uh, like a lot of episodes, and so we're so glad that you are with us. And But with that, let me introduce our hosts and one of our guest hosts tonight, a couple of guest hosts, actually. So my name is Craig Knott, and let me pass it over to the rest of them. I'm Bill Hostler. Uh, Robert Johnson is on with you as well. And I'm Darren Laners, and with us, uh, another very special guest. Lisa Goodpaster. Thank you, everyone, again for jumping in. Especially glad to have RJ and Lisa. And this episode is, I guess I would call it professional development or talent development. Does, Does Freemasonry do that? Darren had written an article a couple of weeks ago on the Midnight Freemason blog, which we'll put a link to in the uh, show notes. But he was challenging and asking the question, and from his point of view, I'll just read just the very first part here. Freemasonry does very little to no talent development. For an organization that claims to take good men and make them better, that's a pretty damning statement. However, I stand by it. So what we're going to do on this episode is pick that article apart, maybe challenge some of Darren's assumptions, and dig in that task because it's it's really at the heart of what I think a lot of members, when they knock on the door, at least what they're hoping for, whether they call it talent development or not. We've asked Lisa to be on because Lisa has a background in talent development, and so she's going to uh, add some uh, professional expertise RJ, I know, has had a lot of expertise and a lot of work in this, and he actually has uh, co-authored a a book, which I would argue is very much focused on this kind of effort. And so we may talk about that book as well. That book is titled, It's Business Time, Adopting a Corporate Path for Freemasonry. It's out on Amazon. You can find it on the Whence Came You website, a link to it. So there's your background in terms of all, of us. But I'm going to challenge Darren now by asking him to introduce his article, perhaps what motivated him to write it, and then we're going to start throwing eggs at him. Sounds good, Greg. Thanks. What motivated me, honestly, to write the article was a discussion with Lisa regarding her organization that she belongs to which is the Association for Talent Development, and what talent development was, what it wasn't. During that conversation, it kind of dawned on me that we're not really doing a great job in Freemasonry of identifying and or developing talent. So that's kind of what spawned the article. I'm sorry, what was the second part, Greg? Go into details about make your argument as to why. I mean, so that's, you've introduced, but I'd like you to explain, dig down another layer and and 
give us some examples of, of why perhaps we're not filling our expectation or, or, or mission around this topic? I think statistically the, the numbers would bear out that we're not doing a great job of retaining our membership. And in business, the main way you retain membership is talent development. You identify your employees, you identify their talents, and you help to develop those areas where they have expertise and then also identify the areas where they have weakness and help to uh, build those into strengths as well. I don't see, at least in my own personal experience, I've not seen a lot of that occur uh, in Freemasonry. We always talk about, and the big tagline is, we take good men and we make them better. But when it when the rubber hits the road, when, when it comes to making men better, we do a poor job. We don't prioritize education. We don't prioritize development of skills and or talents. And I think as a whole, that hurts us as a fraternity. I'm going to ask RJ his impression of your article and to reflect on it and dig just to dig a little bit deeper and to challenge you perhaps on, Darren, some of your conclusions here. So, Darren, I first read your article and I thought, man, I've seen bits and pieces of what you outlined in this article, these frustrations, if you will, in previous works of yours. And I think really to date, uh, what what ends up happening is we address something and then time moves forward and we kind of become okay with it again. And then we get fed up again and it's time to strike the iron again. And what I see happen is maybe once a year or so, people on across the Masonic blogosphere uh, will put together an article that addresses a concern of theirs. And they hit it like once a year because we just have to be reminded. And what you've done in this article, I found, was not only bring up some things that you've brought up in the past because they are still problems. And I hate, I hesitate to use the word problem. The, the coach in me would say like these opportunities for improvement. <laughs> but I think the article does a great job of pointing things out. And I'll be honest, when I shared this out, I was expecting to hear aches and pains and groans from everybody because I, I put this stuff, I share it to every Grand Lodge Facebook group that I can. So I'm a member of a ton of them. And to my surprise, I, I don't know that it felt like a parallel universe. I was seeing grand so-and-sos saying, this was great, recommended reading and sharing it or and I was just kind of blown away. And I think in that first thing that you mentioned you asked this question does freemasonry develop talent? And after reading your article I felt no. No we don't, but maybe we foster it. Do we foster talent development? Like do we create an atmosphere conducive to making a man better if he puts in the work. But then I don't like using the term, you have to put into it what you get out of it, right? You make mention of some other areas in the article where you're highly critical 
of the idea of mentorship within uh, the Masonic Lodge. I've never seen a Masonic Lodge put a mentor to a candidate who knew that he was going to become a mentor five minutes before the Worshipful Master asked him to do it. By the way, at the end of a meeting, no less, at the end of a degree. And I guess I want to know from you, Darren, what do you feel that that's appropriate? Do you think that when I say we foster it is accurate? And, and if so, like if you can expound on, on your thoughts on that a little bit. And I have some other things later that I was going to bring up, but I wanted to get your idea about fostering talent development in place of developing it. Sure. Let me say, I think that ideally our fraternity has the tools to allow fostering of talent development. I think that like education, for example, that our priorities are often misplaced. And I go into this in the article, specifically when it comes to uh, how we run our business meetings, uh, at least how the majority, I'd say, of lodges run business meetings. I think that we over-prioritize trivial aspects of business meetings. For example, a lot of the lodge meetings that I still attend they still read the minutes, they still read the bills, they read the treasurer's report, they do a lot of things that should be able to be done in advance of the meeting so that one can just say, okay, I've read this, uh, are there any questions or concerns or comments, additions, corrections, etc., and we can uh, then, you know, just approve those as read. And that saves... Hold on, let me, let me stop sure. you right there. I want to ask, though, there was – I have a really good relationship with this person, and he maintains and says this quite often. You should love reading the minutes because they should be exciting, and if there's nothing exciting in your minutes, then we're doing something wrong. What do you feel about that? I'm going to throw that curveball at you in the middle of answering something else. Sure, fair enough. I'd agree 100% with that. Uh, I think a lot of the problem is that our meetings aren't exciting. And I guess that's kind of the point I was trying to drill down to is that we are not managing our time well during our stated meetings. So we're prioritizing items such as, just as an example, in my real life, uh, St. Joe's Lodge needs roof repairs. And we have spent... an ordinate amount of time discussing the repairs to the roof. Ideally, yes, we know it needs to be done, but just some of the discussion or some of the questions from the brethren regarding it, I felt could have been easily answered through email communications. I understand that each brother has a voice within the meeting and that they, you know, should be able to express their voice. But at the same time, I think that 30 minutes to 45 minutes discussing an item is excessive. And part of that's honestly on me as, as master to not gavel some of that down. So I'll take responsibility for that. But uh, just in general, where we're prioritizing items like that and not prioritizing doing education or talking about doing some sort of skills development workshop or something that would help improve the brethren and help them grow as men, uh, that's where I see our our 
priorities as being incorrect. So I would agree 100% with what you just said. If I were to uh, be able to read minutes where we have in previous meetings spent a good amount of time on education or uh, we had somebody come in to discuss a certain skill or uh, even practice some skills, public speaking, what have you, something to help improve the brethren, I'd be overjoyed. I just, in my experience, that's not happened. So Steve Harrison once wrote about education being served up on a silver platter. Literally, literally the Grand Lodge of the state of Missouri decided to put together an education program. In this, I would say whether it's some historical thing or maybe it is some kind of a workshop or some sort of uh, exercise for the lodge to do when they developed this and gave it to every single lodge, they still didn't do it. So my question to you is, are there enough people craving this in Freemasonry to actually care about it at all? Or maybe we just are the outcasts. Maybe we're the goonies of Freemasonry, right? Um, are we the only ones who care about this? And Or is a, not the only ones, but are we such a minority that we're trying to make Freemasonry something it isn't? Well... To, to answer that, RJ, I would first say Goonies never say die. Uh, we may be the outcasts. We may be the Goonies. We may be the freaks for wanting education or betterment of, of ourselves and our brethren. And if that's the cross that I'm going to uh, die on, that's one that I'll gladly do so. Uh, my, But to answer your question, I think, you know, there are brethren that do not care one bit about about this, about education, about developing themselves as men. I think that for, I don't want to say a majority, but for a portion of our fraternity, there are brothers that just view Freemasonry as a good old boys club. And we get together and it's uh, time away from my wife or girlfriend and I go to the meeting and then I can go out with the boys after I have a few brews and that's that and it's a good night and I just don't that's not how I see Freemasonry but I think others probably do and that's that's fine I mean that's that's their choice I just want something better you you put down three points you said not all Freemasons are good not all Freemasons care and uh, some Freemasons have no intent on helping other Freemasons, which explains their lack of concern for education in a lodge. And you just touched on one of those, that there's this idea that maybe they just don't kind of care about that kind of thing. But what could we what could we even offer, right? Like we, ha we have all this stuff that we talk about, we make a good man better. But I'm going to ask Lisa because – you deal with this day in and day out. Let me ask you, what in the world could an, an organization like Freemasonry teach a bunch of 45 to, or not even, 20 to, you know, 99-year-old dudes? What could we even teach that's valuable that spans that gamut? I think that's actually a really good question. I think the first thing is maybe start with asking your brothers what they want out of this. What are they looking for as far as education? I also think you'll have different audiences, just to what Darren said. You'll have people that want different things. But I think if you don't really understand your audience, meaning your brothers, 
and or potential future Masons, then you don't know where to start. You're just sort of, you're probably starting where you can start and some people will appreciate that and some people won't. But I think just by asking and starting with trying to find out, and every lodge might be a little different, people within the lodge for sure, will probably be different to your point. You're spanning different generations, different interests. But I think that's a starting point to really get an idea. Are you going to ever satisfy everybody all the time? I would say the answer is probably no. But I think that you can at least have a real good idea who your brethren are and what they may be looking to get out of the experience of Freemasonry. That's awesome. Thank you for your insight. Bill, let me ask you as the most veteran member of the four Freemasons on this podcast, kind of your reaction to Darren's article, reflect what you've seen and maybe what you heard from Lisa. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I've been kind of just sitting here laughing at myself because you know, we seem to take men who come into the lodge and if we do anything with them at all, other than tell them to sit on the sideline and shut up, sit down, you'll be master someday, then you can do what you want. We lie to them in that way. We just say, okay, well, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a garbage man. Okay, great. You'll be a great leader in the lodge, but I don't know anything about leading. That's all right. Don't worry about it. Or we'll go up to a man and says, well, what do you do? Well, I'm, well, I'm an assurance man, I'm, and, or I'm an accountant. Great. We're going to put you to cooking supper. We don't use a man when we get him and use him to his and to what he knows what he's doing is talent. That's just something I've noticed since I started. I mean, there's exceptions to it. I think mean, there are sometimes. Like, people found out I can build a website. So, good Lord, I don't know how many websites have taken over for Masonry over the years. But I have been writing a piece for the Midnight Freemasons now. I still haven't got it done for about a year now. It was about a year and a half ago or so. Uh, my fiancé, who's an executive with a hospital that was started originally by a religious organization, I went to one of her their retreats in Branson. And one night at the dinner convocation, the big muckety-muck for the region got up in front of the whole crowd. and He started talking about his call to service. And he was telling about this lady that, he knew in the one community and how she was she had cancer and um she didn't have two nickels to rub together and how he made sure that this woman got all the treatment she needed and didn't cost her a dime and i was impressed with that and so i you know when we got home i asked him I said, what is this call to service and so i asked her i said what is that well she began to tell me she says that once you're an employee of this of this organization they ask you it's not mandatory but they ask you to come up with your call to service which is basically what god or your you know, supreme being draw what makes you draw into that job because ultimately since it was a religious organization you're called to serve your creator by helping people, especially the community or the whole of the world. And that kind of struck me because, you know, and I, up until that point, I had never thought of how many different positions there are in a hospital. Yeah, I mean, everybody thinks about, you know, you watch ER or one of those shows, you think of the doctors or the nurses, but, you know, there's the guy that, the janitor that makes sure that the, the place is clean and he, you know, which is just as important because otherwise septus or some type of infection could set in because of the uncleanliness. You have the food workers who make 
wholesome meals for these people who are stuck there, or visitors, or even employees. There are a security who keeps people safe in this environment. And especially now with this COVID situation, think of how many people it takes in so many different roles to run a hospital, or really just any organization. But in masonry, we go up there, we take a new man, we say, great, you're a new mason, you're a master mason, awesome. Sit down here as junior steward, a couple of years you're going to be master. You don't know if the guy wants to be a leader, has the capability of being a leader, or what. But what I've been thinking is, is that when we get a new man, we ask him, what do you like to do? What are your strengths? What is it that you want to gain out of masonry? Well, I really love being a carpenter, and I love fixing things. Okay, awesome. Put them on, you know, and say, well, how about our building committee? Or, well, I, I'm a chef. I love cooking. Well, how about, you know, one of the people help make some, you know, dinner for the, for the lodge? Or, you know, I, I love, you know, leading people. Well, okay, we'll put you in possibly someday you'll be a leader of the lodge. Or, well, I'm an actor. Well, how about degree work? Every man has his own strength and his own ability and the thing he likes to do. But we don't use those. And it's, it, we've tried it for 50 years. We see, obviously, it doesn't work. But if you look at like a lot of these churches, especially the mega churches, they break out into lots of little groups. And they seem to be doing all right because they garner thousands of members. And it seems to, to me anyway, that they that people find what they're looking for. And, and they're serving their the, their creator in the way that they're looking for. So I would think if we could just find that person and try to help him establish his call to service within masonry, maybe we could keep them. And if you know if people were into into education, awesome. Have a night where they have a study group or they have Masonic studies other than night of the state of meeting. They can still come to the state of meeting if they want, but you know they they can still have their they can still have their education. If there's no losses, it has to be done on that night. I mean, there's seven nights in a week, and we have a building. Why not use them more than one or two nights a week? It just it seems like we just kind of underutilize our people and we underutilize our resources. And I really think it's a darn shame. And as Forrest Gump said, that's all I have to say about that. Well, thank you, Bill. That was a lot of insight. So. Let me put together what I'm hearing, what everybody, all of us have said thus far, because there's so many good points in there. This is, there's just so much here to unpack. I think RJ's question and, and point about, you know, we get fired up, you know, here Darren's written this article and is that the midnight free Freemason shot across the bow for 2021 or till 2021? And then we go back to, I'm writing articles about my travel and others, you know, this, that, and the other, and we forget about it. Or we go to the lodge meeting and we have one great night of education. And then the next meeting, we're all looking at each other. It's like, oh, you didn't bring anything. You didn't prepare anything. Or to Lisa's point, do we even know what people want? Have we done an assessment? To Bill's point, do we take their talent and, and use them? And so there's so much there. So let me let me put it in one a parallel organization that you all know I'm involved with, and that's scouting. The precepts of scouting and Freemasonry, frankly, are very parallel. If you, you look at a lot of the things we do in scouts, the principles in regards to what it stands for in, in Freemasonry are very similar. 
where I think scouting has excelled and why it's excelled is because they've developed a, a talent pipeline. And they've had to do this because the nature of scouting is, you know, you come in with your kids and maybe they stay a couple years or maybe they stay 14 years like my boy did. But you got people coming and going all the time. And unless you've got an infrastructure that can support the training and development over and over and over, otherwise it would fail. It would collapse upon itself. And so I often wonder if in Freemasonry, Regardless of what the topics were, how you make good men better, you'd have to go to that core basic infrastructure and and build it out. But I have concerns, as RJ and others have said, I don't know if we have the energy to sustain that. Because what happens is, and Darren and I, everybody on this podcast has been guilty of this. You get a lot of energy, we get things going, and maybe it's a year, two, or three, and then you just can't do it by yourself. It's not sustainable. And so the, I guess maybe that is my question or thoughts to, to you all is, how would you make something that's sustainable, even if you could identify what people wanted? If you identified your audience in this lodge is different than that one, than that one, how could you start down a road of sustainability? Yeah, I was just going to say this is the crux of the entire issue is because no matter who is the driver, you got to pull over at some point and switch, right? And this is what we all deal with. And so the only way that we've been able to deal with this, like Scott and I decided to put together a bylaw set that was experimental that turned into a lodge. And the issue that we saw was this. We don't, there's no way to ensure a lodge culture of bettering the individual mason without putting that inside the bylaws. But you have to do it in such an objective way that makes it approachable, makes it makes it tolerable for, for people who might not be into that. And so some things that we, we talked about doing that we did implement was, one, we have no actual progressive line in order to be considered for the worshipful master's role of course you have to meet the prerequisite in illinois of being or serving as a warden unless you have a grand lodge dispensation putting that out but the the way you get elected is Simply, eligible people will present their educational program for the following year. People vote for the one they want the most. So that's that's one area of how you can ensure driving a singular mission of educating your members. But then you also have this other challenge, which is how do you present topics to a vast audience of people who might not all be into that thing. And really, it's it all comes back to this kind of benign Trojan horse tactic. And I think, Greg, you and I talked about this before, scouting, and you said it, and I'm going to quote you on it, but I'll paraphrase. And it was, yes, we're making scouts better people, but it's not through the knots that they're tying. It's not through the knives they're sharpening or the archery or the camping. It's the conversations that happen while those things are going on. It's the distraction. And what we do is 
we have this conversation. You drive a conversation, and then all of a sudden, guys who... I mean, you know, we're talking about mostly here regular uh, recognized men's Freemasonry. Guys are always, they got the shield up. And all of a sudden you start driving a conversation and now we're having real sharing going on, real learning going on. And so this is somewhat of a, a way to, to start the this on this path. But then what Bill was talking about, calling out people, who are the best at their jobs. Alphonse Serza wrote about this in a piece called Work, Work, Work. He says, it's not really like human hacking. You're not, you're not playing into somebody's ego here. But by recognizing somebody's talent and publicly saying to the lodge, hey, you're an amazing painter. Do you think you could do this lodge? You give him a feel-good, and he's ready to work for the lodge. He's invested. Or... Darren, you, a person who serves as a, a an intermediary between persons, a, a mediator, and so we'd like you to serve on the lodge committee for, what do you call it when people have a gripe, but those kind of things. I think that's how you start, but we get so myopic sometimes that we want to have so much control. We want to show the world like, dang it. We're education only, and you develop some stringent program that's so ridiculous. It's unattainable, and nobody's going to carry that moving forward. And we've seen that time and time again. It happens every single day when a Masonic study group starts and ends in two months, or when a Blue Lounge Social Club starts, doesn't gain traction, and dies. It just takes constant stoking of the fire, I guess. Bill? What I was going to say is, is that it can be done. I mean, if you think about it, what was it, eight years ago, Todd Creason had an idea to start this silly little blog in the middle of the night, and it's still going, and all of us have different backgrounds and different viewpoints, but we still keep this circus going somehow. And so, I mean, it can be done. It's just, I think we're kind of thinking that it's like in a vacuum. You know, you said that, now, three years down the road, you're still trying to get it going. Well, three years ago, you st- three years go by, you still want to be going. But hopefully, you've gained or you know gained some followers by then, and you've gained some helpers. You know, like a Rolling Stone gaining moss. So you might, you know, you might start out by yourself, and if you're pr- successful and it's meant to be, you might start out by yourself, and you might have five people after a couple months, and then. Say after three years, you might have 25 to 50 people as part of this. And then each one of them working together, who's to say that they're not keeping it going and you could take a back seat and let them run it? See, that's another thing, too, is that we have so many of these older guys that, you know, I've been doing this for 1,400 years. Well, yeah, but some of these younger guys might like their turn at it, too. You can let them try their hand at it and either... They might fail, but they might also succeed and take it to a new direction, a new height. We can't not try. And it may fail, and we try something, we start out, and we try something else again and see if it works. And if it don't, great. We'll try something, we'll try it again. But we can't just not try. We have to continue to keep going. At least that's kind of the way I look at it. Darren, you had five points towards the end of your article that 
And let me just read the, the, the paragraph before it introduced the, the, the topic here. It says, how do we change this? And many of the things you wrote in your article are some of the things that have been mentioned here already. It says, ultimately, you can only impact what is happening at your local lodge. Here are some things you can do to help change your lodge culture and start developing talent. And just let me just read just a couple words on each one, then let, let's dig into these because there's, there's some good stuff here. You need to have allies. Number two, you and your allies need to act as role mo- models and mentors. Three, build a process to support the development. Four, reinforce our shared values. And number five, be adaptable. And Darren, I, based on what you've heard us say, based on what you've written, I'd like to ask you to reflect a little bit on those things. And then Lisa as well, from her professional development background, to add some more to that conversation so the first point was you need allies uh, basically the thought was that the only way you can institute change within a lodge is to change the bylaws and rj kind of alluded to this earlier in regards to the lodge that he belongs to not having a progressive line and basically it's written into their bylaws that they don't have uh, a progressive line that there'll be a uh, I guess general election, uh, even though every Masonic election's in theory a general election. Uh, I mean, for the most part, uh, nine out of ten lodges, all the officers uh, are usually elected by acclamation because nobody's running against them uh, for that particular office. Uh, my point being that if you need, if you want to uh, have institutional change occur at the lodge level, you have to have the framework in place, if you will, to have that change occur. So you need allies that are going to support the change of that bylaw, because then I think this might be in the Grand Lodge Constitution bylaws, but I want to say at least our local lodge, I'm just going off St. Joe, I think you need a two-thirds majority to change a bylaw, and I'd have to look at the bylaws honestly to tell you that. Basically, you need people that are on the same page and have the same vision as you do to affect change at your lodge. That was my point there. So, so we've heard all that, Lisa. What? I just want to get your thoughts of what you've heard thus far, and if you see gaps in what we've talked about, and then I'm going to turn around and push back a little bit on some of what we what we've talked about. A lot of what. Everyone has said, in my opinion, is pretty spot on. I really liked the idea that Bill brought up that it sounds like possibly you're not at the more nuanced level talking to these men to see what they do, what they like to do, what their passions are, what do they want to do, to know where to place them in the lodge as far as how they can serve, to what they'd be interested in. That goes back into sort of asking them about what they're interested in. I think sometimes in business or even in non-for-profits, you see, and this was kind of mentioned also, you just put people in a spot because you need the people, but you aren't actually making sure it's the people that need to be there. And I do think that ties a little bit into having allies. I think making sure that you understand where people's passions lie. So if there's a committee or a some kind of subgroup that wants to meet, where do they naturally align? 
I think you obviously probably have overarching things in a lodge that you want every, hopefully everybody is interested in, but I think having allies makes sense. I think that goes back down to recruitment and secession planning. So what I'm hearing is you have men who are in lodges who've done things for a long time, and that's great. They've probably served for years in roles, but maybe some of the new members or younger members are interested in serving. How are you creating secession plans for them? How are you including them in that and letting them bring fresh ideas in as well as the existing ideas that do work? I think understanding that would be important too, and I've heard some of that as well. I also like the idea, and Bill, I believe it was you that said this, that to try things. I think you can't just expect everything to succeed, nor should you expect everything to fail either. I think when you try things, though, people have to give it some time. You can't just try it once. It doesn't work unless there's something very explicit that's not working, but it's just it needs to grow and build as people get used to it because it might be change that people aren't always used to or are familiar with. So I think really tying into a lot of the things that everyone has said are pretty spot on and seem to really align Yes, in business and non-for-profits, but also in an organization such as Freemasonry. It, it all really is the same thing, just it may be different terminologies in those different worlds, but it really is all the same. RJ alluded to something that I was thinking about, and that was, I can't think how you said it, RJ, but essentially I'm going to call it parking lot conversations. And uh, sometimes I have found that we go through the formal meeting and frankly, I enjoy some of the hour-long parking lot conversations, literally, that I've stood in the parking lot at St. Joe and had with men over the years and how much you're engaging them and you're talking about things. And it may not even be lodge-oriented, but I think, boy, why aren't we doing that upstairs? And and as you alluded to, RJ and Darren both and Bill, we break these walls down and you get guys talking about stuff. And then all of a sudden they get on a roll talking about stuff. To me, that's where you want to be. So there's that. You made a comment, I think, RJ, about, you know, Steve Harrison did write that article a number of years ago about spoon feeding. And is that really what people want? And I don't know. Obviously, they don't utilize all the resources we have because there's thousands of books and umpteen articles and now media of different platforms available to use. So maybe it comes back to one of what Darren's mentioning in her about the mentors. Let me talk about mentors for a minute because it, it sort of ties into some of this other stuff. And, and I'm, I'm going to push back a little bit on or frame it that maybe we're not giving ourselves credit for some of the things we are doing as a fraternity to make men better. And I think everything we've talked about up to this point is what makes it the lodge experience better, makes it so that the guy that you raised to the third degree comes back for more than two meetings and, and sees that it's more than just minutes and, and those kind of things. But the mentoring piece, Darren and I have talked about this in various capacities, but I think of a lot of the guys that I've met in this fraternity, and some of them have passed on now. And, and I've spoken here and on the Midnight Freemasons about the World War II generation and how influential they still are to me, even though many of them are gone. It was some of those parking lot conversations I had with some of those guys. I remember Joe Silkey, who was over in Ogden Lodge. He was a World War II veteran. He was somebody that had, had been raised 
and, and became a, a, a Mason before he went to the war, got a career, and didn't come back to Lodge, he told me one night, for I think 35 years or more. And so he comes back as an 80-year-old, and by the time I knew him, he was in his late 80s. It was just amazing some of the conversations I had with him. And at those times, I was running for a political office and, and doing things. And just the two minutes of advice I would get from him on this, that, or the other, and frankly, most of it had nothing to do with Blue Lodge items or even masonry in general, but it seemed like some of those principles you learned out of the degrees, he was illustrating what they meant to me, even if he didn't know that's what he was doing. And so I guess my point in telling that story and alluding to that area is we can do all these formal things that we should do, but I still think there's value gained that perhaps sometimes we don't fully account for in those informal things, the parking lot conversations, the the conversations we've had with, you know, people at Grand Lodge, the, the energy that RJ's done on putting so many special events together that I've learned in the events, but when we when you did the three hundredth anniversary Alexandria that Darren and I went to RJ, the fun part was hearing the education. The the platinum part was all the conversations that you guys put together in regards to a platform that you could talk one-to-one -one and have these little groups and you're sitting around a table and all that. I guess I'm gaining all that out of those from just experiential learning. And though that's different than maybe perhaps some of the talent development we're talking about, I think those go in tandem. And RJ, I'd like your reaction to some of what I threw out there. Yeah, I think that's a really valid point because I'll tell you that – there is still an element that we've been recapturing at a new lodge that went after formal education and formal process. And that element that was missing is exactly what you're describing. When I read Darren's article, I think I'm the worst employee in the world because I read like my employee manual and find every nitpick and thing I can to know my rights as an employee and what my job is going to give me. And so because of my interest in those things, I'm always looking like, what is Freemasonry even offering? It's like a fancy word, making good men better. And Darren, you asked how. And it's exactly what I'm thinking with, with what you're mentioning, Greg, is this idea that Maybe we don't need formal process. Maybe the answer is that it's this individual flavor of a lodge. It's this camaraderie that we tend to find with one, two, ten brothers maybe who seem to form you know, a clique in the lodge or something. It's, it is those, my mind immediately goes to hot summer nights, putting the tailgate down on a truck in the back of uh, the parking lot with a lodge where we all um, kind of congregate after the meeting. And our intent is to go to the bar, like Darren was saying, but we don't even ever even make it there because we're so busy just hanging out and talking about these things in the parking lot. And, and when I think about those, those nights, I think about what I take away from that and the things that are born out of those conversations, I hate like personality type stuff when it comes to like uh, 
talking about what kind of an employee you are, what kind of executive you are, right? I'm an ENTJ with Myers-Briggs. And that basically says that I'm quick to adopt things. And then I want, as soon as I come up with them, I want to launch them right now. And so these after lodge meetings, you know, in the, in the parking lots, I get an idea and I'm like, okay, we got to do this, 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 and this, and we're going to do it by next Friday. And it's done. Boom, done. And, and so that's kind of like the answer to maybe some of what Darren's looking for, you know, with process and, and how to implement something to make lodge education in terms of talent development, maybe how to develop the male in the 21st century. But I want to, I I have to agree with you, Greg. I, I don't know, because sometimes I think, can you make so many rules? Can you expect so much from this particular organization? Maybe it's true for all. I don't know. I haven't put, you know, I can't place that same, Freemasonry is its own mold. I can't adopt it or adapted even to anything else, really, even though I wrote a book about how to adopt policies into Freemasonry. But I still think we we covered several things in that book, and I thought you could pick one of these, but probably not all of them. And I I don't know, I'm jumping around a lot here, but I I really, I want to lean back on that idea that maybe none of this is necessary. Maybe it just is what it's supposed to be for the people who get it. I think you may have hit something there, RJ, and it's, I kind of alluded to it in this article, but I know I've talked about it in the past, and I really think it may just boil down to finding a lodge that suits your needs the best, uh, or uh, especially for some of us here in non-metropolitan areas, it's not as easy as it might be for someone who's in a metropolitan area, but, you know, basically lodge shopping or finding finding a lodge that suits what you want. But it's easier said than done, though, right? Well, correct, and that's that's part of what my article is born out of because I don't, I feel that here my opportunities are limited, and don't get me wrong, I'm in a, a lodge with, with Greg and... and uh, Todd and a bunch of great brethren, but at the same time, it's also usually Greg or Todd and a few others in the area that are doing uh, the work, if you will, and I'm sure that's the case across Freemasonry. I think more of the point of my article, or a question that uh, I maybe tried to answer and didn't do a good job of answering, was how do we get more brethren involved and Lisa and I were having a side conversation and it's it's almost a catch-22 because in order for us to do a lot of the things that we want to do we need to have more people to volunteer to, to help with those ideas because otherwise as we discussed earlier where we get burnt out, we we try something but then you know our energy fades because it's just a few of us doing it so we don't have enough resources to to spread the work around. We're stuck in this perpetual catch-22 where we don't have the resources, but when we get new resources in, we're unable to retain them because we don't have the resources to put programs in place in order to retain them, if, if that makes sense. Well, I think that makes sense. And I think when some people may listen to this conversation and they think about programs, thinking about Grand Lodge should do this and and things. But I think Darren's point, RJ's point, 
Bill's point, is that local that local level, that local element is where really the only place you're going to be able to change it. So I actually think there's this middle ground that you need those parking lot conversations because that's an important element of, in an informal way, in a non-threatening way, and in, in sort of a non-structured way, where you get to know people, you're talking about your kids, you're talking about maybe something that went on in the meeting and exploring it a little bit more. But I also think in the meeting itself, that's when you have your sort of captive audience. And you take those things that, that Lisa and Bill talked about, about knowing your audience and taking their talents and pulling them out. And I, I remember one year when I was master of St. Joe, I told Todd Hitt, I said, you have lodge education next month. I said, you need to present on something. He looked at me. I said, no, seriously. I said, you're a good presenter. And so he came in and gave a presentation. I remember he's a fireman and gave a presentation on the meaning of the, of the bell, the fire bell. And I thought, wow, that was just, it was just so interesting. And I guess my point being is sometimes maybe people won't ask, but we need to challenge them and say, and I've, I've done this recently in my staff meetings. I said, I would challenge each of you to come and uh, present something, either about yourself, somebody from like a guest speaker. It could be on a topic of something you want to learn. And I could feel the hesitancy at first. But, you know, now we've kind of done it. Three, four people have done it. And now they kind of see the variety of, well, it could be about myself. It could be about a topic. One day I, we were on a Zoom and my topic was my antique tractors. And so I showed via live cast on the Zoom. We walked through my machine shed and I, I described each of the tractors. And, and I knew most of them didn't have a background in ag. And that was, you know, there it was way out of the box in terms of what our work is. And they enjoyed it. And they're like, oh, I could hear the passion in your voice. And so I think, again, there's sort of this middle ground where we need to, to challenge people to, to let them know that they have the ability to do some of these things. We also have to see what their interests are. We also have to help them find their talent. One of the things I've talked to Todd Creason about recently was, in scouting, again, it's just a, a parallel I always use, is the train-the-trainer method. I think there's a number of people that would like to do education but they make it too hard and don't know where to start. And I think by growing them, mentoring them, uh, we could increase that amount of people that want to do these things or see these things. And I think there's some talent there that people have that we've not fully utilized that helps the problem of, of burnout of the group like us that are the doers. And to, to increase our ranks, I guess is what I'm saying. To me, otherwise, all the things we're going to do and talk about, they're not sustainable because there's not enough of us. But if we could grow our ranks, and maybe some of it's structured, maybe some of it's unstructured, maybe some of it's through those parking lot conversations, I guess I kind of see all of that as part of that package. And uh, I know we're getting getting long here, but let me ask Bill sort of your reaction. We'll, we'll kind of... First of all, I'm gonna, what I'm going to say, I don't want it to be taken as I'm knocking anyone because it's farthest thing from my from my intentions. 
But one of the first pieces I wrote for the Midnight Freemasons with a 50-year member was about a social room. When I was a manager of the Fort Wayne Temple, our building on the second floor had this, the entire site, the entire second floor was a social room. It was one of those like you picture in the movies that had a deep pile carpet, leather chairs, pool tables, card tables. And back in the 20s, from the building was built in 26 and up, and it was open every day until like the late 60s to early 70s when downtown started to change. And it was every, when every city it was that way. But they would open from like, say, 9, 10 o'clock in the morning, and they wouldn't close those doors down there until they went to close the building at night after the lodges had shut down. And these guys would come in there. There was giant coffee urns. If they'd fill twice a day, each one of these coffee urns had, had a capacity of 300 cups of coffee. And there was a guy that would sell cigars in there, and they'd sit and smoke cigars, read the paper, play pool, drink coffee, talk. And I'm going to lay odds that there was a lot of people, a lot of these brethren, kind of like these the tailgate talks that we had or talked about. They got to know each other. They were all from all different lodges in the city. And if you think about it, this was in Masonry's heyday from the 1920s, back when education was still relevant, back when the days of the builder, Joseph Fort Newton, people still treasured Masonic education up through the World War II era and up until the time in the late 60s, early 70s, when Masonry really started to decline. And then they started closing the door, and then they started waning into what we have today. It just kind of seems to me like maybe there's something between those two things when they stopped having this shared uh, spread cement in this building. And then they quit really getting to know each other other than getting in, bringing them in, and leaving. And then when they stopped really spreading cement and just did their business and went home, and then they declined the masonry. This is the part I think might be what people's going to get their nose out of joint. Now, most of you people know I'm a Shriner, and I'm, I'm a proud Shriner, don't get me wrong. I'm not one of these guys that goes drives around in the little cars, but I do treasure my membership. A lot of the guys who are into education, they they don't like the shrine. And I understand because it's not exactly the guys, you know, the Shriners they're they're fun they're fun. They like to have their they don't take education seriously. But it comes across to the shrine type, the old guys. Oh, the education people, they don't like my kind of people. They're they're too, you know, stuffy. And then to the and then and it's the same way that the education people feel about the Shriners. You know, I can, I'm kind of like on the fence. I'm I I kind of have a foot in both camps, so I can kind of see. And I've often thought that if we could kind of get both sides to shake hands and kind of reach a commonality, where the education guys might loosen up and enjoy themselves a little bit, maybe the the older guys might take an interest. I mean, I, I know it's a long shot. Don't get me wrong. If they didn't feel threatened, like, to, you know, they're trying to take over masonry and trying to change things as much as it is, maybe they wouldn't have, you know, maybe they wouldn't be so guarded. I just really think that that's part of it is, is that we took the fun out of it. I mean, like you guys said, this is the, the thing that you remember the most, not so much education, but 
Some of my best times isn't sitting in Lodge. It's sitting there at Grand Lodge talking with Chris Odap and Roger Van Gordon and those guys. Nobody's going to remember in 50 years when they're getting their 50-year member pin about the minutes they listened to in 1981. They're going to remember the good times they had when they were with their, with their brethren. And we need to bring that back. Because if we bring back the fun and we bring back the education, maybe you can see more like a way to meld those two together. Assign these guys a job. Give them something to do. Maybe then we can keep them interested long enough to keep them from leaving. So let me push back a little bit and ask Darren or RJ to comment on my observation. I'm going to argue that these, in the current times, this year in 2020, I've actually had more parking lot conversations with Masons around the country than I did, I know, in 2019. And part of that has been because of this evolution of Zoom and other platforms that I've been dialed into. There's there's a lodge in California that I had a friend in, and I've dialed into their group discussion, I think, four or five times. And so I've met a whole bunch of guys, and it wasn't a meeting. It was simply a Zoom that brought people together. And to me, it was so fascinating because I'm hearing what's going on with COVID in California and we had some scouting connections and we had, and they're wondering what's happening in Illinois. And we talked about this, that, and the other. And to Bill's point, one is that how everybody used to gather. So my question for Darren or RJ, do you think that we're doing some of these things and maybe not even know it? And we're doing it via these new platforms that a year ago, nobody had ever heard of. Well, I, I was just going to say that I think younger uh, Freemasons, and I mean Freemasons, again, not in age, just younger in the craft, a lot of them have this ease into technology and as such puts them a, a foot in front of a lot other of a lot of other potential brothers who might be running something. But now we're relying on other people to kind of uh, be the people to run a meeting, whether that's on Zoom or whatever. And so it puts them in an interesting arena of folks who, or it gives them an interesting position, rather, to give a voice to people who might be better suited for a position or a talent for something. And that's kind of what, I mean, I got a little bit of what I was talking about just now from what you were saying, Greg, but I would pass it over to Darren for comment. I'd agree, Greg, that uh, we have uh, the one positive thing and I, I want to say I alluded to this in the article. In my mind, it's proven that a lot of things that we usually do within a stated meeting can be handled through email or more virtually. And then secondly, that that we have discovered another platform that we can use to educate brethren. And, and it's on demand, right? So so-and-so puts out on the winding stairs or whatever Facebook group, masonry Facebook group that you're interested in, so-and-so Lodge Research or X Lodge is going to have a presentation. If you're interested, uh, you know, email us and we'll send you the Zoom link. And uh, it's kind of carte blanche. You can join and easily educate yourself, which is, I think, one of the most wonderful things to come out of all of this and and I'm I really feel that going forward that one of the things that sticks around after we're done with this uh will be the virtual 
sessions, if you will, uh, education, or even, as you said, I've had meetings just with uh, some brethren that I've met through various platforms, and they're international. So I've talked to, to brethren in Scotland and England and Greece and Germany, uh, just all of us on a Zoom call together, just talking about what's going on in our lives and, and how Freemasonry is in, in our neck of the woods and how we're adapting. And I think that's amazing. I think that's wonderful. And, and I truly, truly, truly hope that that continues going forward. Uh, parking lot conversations are uh, essentially happening, as you said, virtually as well as uh, the educational are happening. I think a lot of that also helps as virtually I can be in Illinois, Bill's in Oklahoma, we're able to record a podcast uh, on a bi-weekly basis without him being in the room. And that kind of lends to my point, a lot of this is occurring because there are brethren throughout the country that have the same vision, uh, essentially are all allied with each other and wanting to put forward these programs. So I think that, yeah, I think virtually this, the idea that these things can happen is because there are a lot of guys that have the same vision. They're making them happen. The, the challenge is that at a local lodge, and Greg, you can back me up on this, especially St. Joe, there's been so many things that I have tried to engage the brethren, and it just seems like, for whatever reason, I just haven't, I, I don't know that I've, I've not found the the formula yet. And I'm, I keep trying, and I don't know if I'll ever discover the formula, but there are, I think, some lodges where you just have uh, brethren that have a general lack of interest in doing things with each other, and I, I think that's sad. But unfortunately, I think that is the case, especially in the situation I'm in. I just had a, I think this is all wonderful. And because, Lisa, you bring an outside perspective to this, I have a question for you that I think you'll be able to provide some some context or some valuable information for us, I think. And that is where I work currently, I got the job at this company and I came home and I told my wife, my boss uh, pulled me into a meeting with my director and my director said, yes, we hire you to a, to do a job, but our job is to turn you into an executive. And from that moment on, I understood that part of my like half my job literally is being developed to lead the company in some manner or respect. And when I go in for a one-on-one -on -one with my boss every two weeks, she is constantly asking me, how do you feel about this? Do you think this is a good idea? Would you like to go here, 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 or here, or some other place? Here is, you know, it's always about maximizing my job and aligning it to my personal interests and also what I'm good at doing. And my question for you, Lisa, is with talent in mind and the way we run lodges today, could lodges do something like this in your mind? Do you think that there's there's a there's room for something like this to even be adopted in? Could it even and would it even work if it wasn't say official policy? Right? Like the company I work for this is policy because HR and legal stuff and a general 
investiture in people because investing in people makes the company better. And we know that because studies are done and the studies are done and paid for because everybody loves money and we measure how good we are in the profits. And so with a lodge, there's not a call to maybe develop people, right? Because what's the profit for a lodge or I hope you get what I'm asking, but is there room for that kind of a, a talent search, a talent talk with, with brothers and mentors? I think there's definitely room for it. I think it's been said on here already. Does everybody want to be involved in something like that? The answer is probably no, but I think there's absolutely room for it. I think that goes speaks to the mentorship that's been t- discussed. I think it speaks to understanding what people's interests are. I think it also just how you framed your situation with your employment. I mean, it's also kind of getting that buy-in from you. They're they're engaging you. They're asking you. They're not just staying stagnant. They're creating a succession plan for you. There's absolutely room for all of that. You do have to have the right people leading that charge. It's not going to happen on its own. You may have men that seek that out on their own, but it's more likely there's some guide rails that you would have to put in place to establish that. But what does that look like in each lodge? That might vary in each lodge. I also would not put something in place in a lodge and just expect every brother to participate in it. Because just like in business, uh, you know, the situation you're in, they're grooming you to be an executive. That's fantastic. And for somebody that's really interested in that, that's a fantastic opportunity. And a a lot of employers... Mm -hmm. Um, don't do that, frankly. I think there's also something to be said. There are people in business and likely that have joined lodges that are happy just being a member, just being employed, doing a good job, serving in their role and whatever that might be. But they're not necessarily looking to be a leader or a mentor. They just want to be a part of a community or they want to serve a community in some way. So I think there's definitely a place for it. I I think it's figuring out what that is for each lodge. And I think also understanding that for some men, it might just be a, a smaller role. It might just be being a member, supporting those that want to be mentors or leaders or educators and all the various things that your lodge may have. I love that you mentioned that idea of somebody who might not want to be involved in some way in a leadership level in a lodge. And I think that's an underlying issue in all of what we've been talking about is expectations of a member. And it's wrong, I think, after I I heard you kind of articulate some ideas, you know, I have my own kind of reflective moment that it's, it's, it's wrong to just assume that a person joining needs to be a part of you know of this army that we're we're going to win this quote unquote war or whatever. I, I really value your feedback. Thank you, Lisa. A lot here tonight. We knew this was a big topic coming in. We've tried not to be all over the map for for our listeners. I'm hoping that you were each able to uh, get something as you listen to each of us talk a little bit about this. I think it's the crux of why Freemasonry exists. 
And as as you can see, there's just so it's such a complicated and an in-depth uh, issue. Uh, I don't know that we'll ever solve the problem. And the reason we'll never solve the problem is because people can always learn and improve. And I think I, I take Darren's article, frankly, as very positive. What he's doing is challenging, not necessarily the status quo, but I think ourselves. And it's somewhere between a call to action and a call out of awareness and saying, we can do better. And to me, life is a, is a, a, a mission of continuous self-improvement. And though there's lots of things we could do differently and better in Freemasonry, I think we've got a real solid foundation to, to, to build on. And so just to close out, because this was Darren's article, Darren, I just kind of ask you to, to tie this all up and wrap this podcast up. I just want to thank everyone uh, for their comments tonight and their feedback. Uh, as Greg mentioned, it, it is a complex uh, topic, and I don't think there's a solution. I know I offered some guidelines for a possible solution in my article, but I don't think there's one solution to it. I think a lot of things that we touched on are, are relevant and true in Freemasonry. Uh, I do believe that there is kind of an ideological struggle between those that feel, like myself, that education should be prioritized, and then those that maybe, as Bill said, uh, think that us education people have it wrong. <laughs> and the truth is probably somewhere in between, to be honest. One of the beautiful things, the most beautiful thing about Freemasonry is that when I enter a lodge, for the most part, in normal circumstances, and I call this year abnormal, but normal circumstances, uh, when you enter a lodge, uh, you're able to sit down and you're able to just kind of leave the profane world behind. You enter the sacred space, you have your meeting, but also as part of that meeting, you hopefully have a meaningful discussion or you have, after the meeting, the, the parking lot discussion where you have uh, that moment where you would connect with your brethren. And that's really, in my mind, what keeps bringing me back and keeps me engaged in Freemasonry is learning uh, not only about others, but also having others help you learn about yourself. So, if anything, my hope was that... Uh, just in writing the article to get the discussion going to help guys maybe look at this as being an issue that we need to address and hopefully trying to address it uh, at their local lodge level. So I just want to thank everyone uh, once again for discussing this tonight and uh, for reading the article. It, it humbles me uh, to, to actually have somebody actually agree with what I have to say most of the time. It always blows me away, and what keeps me writing, quite frankly, I think most of you can agree with this, is when you have the one brother email you and say, hey, what you said really made sense to me, or it really made me change my way of thinking, or it really energized me, and that's that's what it's all about, in my opinion. So just once again, thanks, guys. I was just going to say, yeah, Darren, especially when that person is a grandmaster. Exactly. And for our listeners, Darren had that experience. He had a grandmaster in one of the jurisdictions, reach out and say, yeah, exactly. We're, we're going to take what you wrote and try to use it to make change. And I think to Darren's point, 
that's exactly why we do a lot of these media platforms. So appreciate everybody listening tonight. Let me thank Lisa for joining us. We'll have you back on another episode to bring your talents and uh, expertise. RJ, thank you for joining us. You can listen to RJ's podcast without fail. I think, what, 50 weeks a year at least, the Whence Came You podcast comes out every Sunday night. And usually by the time I've gotten to work on Monday, I've listened to it. So there's some great stuff there. And, of course, Darren and Bill are our regular co-hosts. We appreciate uh, all that you do to bring this to our listeners. So thank you again, everybody, for joining us. This was Episode 25 of Meet, Act, and Part. And until next time, have a good day. Thank you for listening to Meet, Act, and Part. For more information about our show, visit our website at www.meetactandpart.com. While there, please consider supporting the show by sponsoring us on Patreon. Until we meet again, may we...